Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. It's the top of the week, fellow conspiracy realists, which means it is time for more strange news. Want to begin today with a shout out for our conspiracy realist over on Here's Where It Gets Crazy. Uh, We get a lot of great suggestions there. Uh, If you are uh, someone who engages in Facebook, please do feel free to check that out. And as always, thanks to everyone who has taken the time to write to us or call us uh, at the numbers we'll give you later uh, to hip us to the strange events going on in your neck of the global woods. Today's episode is taking us to laboratories across the Pacific. It's also taking us to uh, a very strange death in Japan and an ongoing scandal in Canada. And Matt, Noel, Doc, uh, 
if we're if we're all on board, I I suggest we go to Canada first and then travel across the pond. What do you say? I think it's always a great idea to go to Canada. Our what, our neighbors to the north was that? Did mm-hmm. I make that up? People say that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, People say our neighbors to the north. I have also heard this called, and this is not us saying this, Canadian friends. I've also heard it called Diet America. I think. <laughs> oh wow! Because it's more that sounds healthy. like a diss. Oh okay, but but it also sounds like they're saying like like tame America. You know, it's like uh, they're just a little bit more milk toast. Yeah, but in this case. Um, not so much, at least that the, is, the yeah. group of people and or institution we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it, Matt, because we know that um, some stereotypes, even if they arguably have a grain of truth, often do more damage uh, than than they do in terms of helping people classify one another, whether that's a community, a country, a religion, what have you. And there is a stereotype of Canadians uh, in the U.S. And that stereotype is generally going to be loosely described as people who are nicer, people who are friendlier, people who are, well, let's just say it, less likely to be violent toward others. But again, the reason they're called stereotypes and not truths is because a stereotype itself is not necessarily true. The news broke recently. And you may have already heard this, folks. The news broke recently on the discovery of a mass grave. Uh, 250 children, their bodies, uh, were found at the site of a defunct boarding school in British Columbia. And this, this is an unfortunate but important update to some of our previous work on the widespread systemic discrimination against First Nations peoples in Canada. You see, Canada had something called the Indian Residential School System. And the way proponents described it was, uh, well, it was fraught with racism. The idea was that through a network of free boarding schools for Indigenous people, uh, the First Nations children would be assimilated into Canadian, a.k.a. European society, whether by hook or by crook, whether or not they wanted to go. And this wasn't like an exclusively Canadian thing. We did this in the United States as well. Yes, that is correct. Uh, versions of this also occurred in other parts of the Anglosphere, in Australia in particular. And this was the naked purpose of these institutions of this system to quote, we've used this quote in uh, in previous episodes, to kill the Indian in the child. This system existed for more than a century. This is the opposite of a dusty, unpleasant historical footnote. Uh, an estimated 150,000 children were placed in these residential schools throughout the nation. Uh, By the 1930s, about 30% of all indigenous children were thought to be at these schools, and they were treated terribly. You know, there was was mental, physical abuse. Uh, There was what I would deem cultural abuse, not being allowed to speak one's own language, practice one's own belief systems, and so on. And this abuse ranged into fatalities. Uh, the 
the numbers now, and we'll we'll tell you why why this story is so important to us at the end of of this segment. But the numbers now are almost impossible to estimate when we when we try to think about how many children died at these schools. The reason these numbers are are, are difficult to estimate is because officially it might be referred to as an incomplete historical record, but I don't think I can be alone in saying that this has all the signs of an active cover-up, right? Or an historical active cover-up. Yeah. Thankfully, there was that, and forgive me, Ben, I don't want to jump too far too quickly, but the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Mm -hmm. we have mentioned before on this show, I cannot remember the context in which we discussed it, but thankfully that occurred and there was a little more light shed on on the subject and just the number of of children people that went missing and were you know officially according to the record died at some point while they were attending one of these schools mm-hmm. um it feels as though much is still unknown here considering like you said the number of bodies that were found right yeah so this this leads to one of the big questions we'll pose at the close. Well, unfortunately, it may be a statement, but here's here's what happened quite recently. Last month, the official announcement came out. The mass grave had been found at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. The Kamloops Residential School operated from 1890 until the late 1970s. It was around for a very long time. And efforts to find remains of children at the school started more than two decades ago, around 20 years ago. Uh, This was, once upon a time, one of Canada's largest residential schools, 500 students or so in its heyday. And while this grave was suspected to exist, uh, it was only found through the use of ground-penetrating radar. Uh, the youngest child appears to have died at the age of three. All the children were buried decades ago. And to your point, Matt, one of the most damning and difficult problems here is determining cause of death for all 2,215 of these victims. So. When we, when we ask how many children died at these residential schools, whatever the causes of death, we have to know that the families, the survivors of these children, were pretty often given vague explanations or outright fabrications. Uh, the schools generally refused to acknowledge the deaths of the children which were in their care, uh, and when they did, they then generally refused to return those children's remains to their families. In fact, and this is, uh, I think, uh, another example of the banality of evil, remains were only sent back to the families if it turned out to be cheaper for the bottom line than physically burying them at the schools. The commission that you mentioned, Matt, estimates that at least 4,100 students had died or quote-unquote gone missing from these schools and rightly demanded the Canadian government account for all of these children, but it could not definitively say how many had disappeared. Murray Sinclair, who's a former judge and senator and was heading the commission, 
told the New York Times that he now believes the number of vanished or uh, dead children was well beyond 10,000. And this, this is terrifying, but keep in mind, folks, that we're talking about 150,000 children in total over the course over the course of this initiative. Ben, I, something I was keep, it keeps ringing in my head, this concept that there were 150 at least, I believe, institutions, schools, actual physical schools. And if you imagine that the 215 number that was recently found that we're talking about today is on the really high end, you can still, like, I'm just doing it, some estimations. Like, let's say, I mean, it's tough to even imagine it that way. But if one school could have that many children die and or go missing and then have their remains found, you can only imagine if you've got 149 other institutions with similar aims, with maybe similar prejudices and other you know things at the core of the institution, you can only imagine that, like you said, that number could be in the tens of thousands. Yeah, I mean, are we talking about like criminal hiding of bodies, like obstructing yes. this as cover up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in in context here, and this is this is a unforgivable statistic. A student at a residential school in Canada was more likely to die there than a Canadian soldier in the Second World War, just with the numbers we know now. And this is important, this is important yet harrowing work. The families, the relatives, the survivors, the descendants, they deserve closure of some sort. I think that's something that we can all agree on, including Justin Trudeau. Uh, who has supported this initiative. But what haunts me and what I think haunts a lot of us in the U.S. and Canada, what what haunts anyone with a, a shred of basic decency here is that this example has rightly gained a lot of news. And while this investigation rightly has a lot of support, it's only scratching the surface there are going to be more bodies found. And yes, you know, to your earlier point, Noel, these kinds of atrocities are not restricted uh, to Canada. This is, there have been mass graves found at schools in Florida, like the Florida School for Boys. There have been uh, cases in Ireland, like the Bon Secure Mother and Baby Home. Uh, in Ireland's Ireland's institutional discrimination is uh, is its own episode as well. And the public is aware of this. They are aware of the virtual certitude, virtual certainty, rather, that there will be more mass graves discovered. Lawmakers and First Nations groups are currently calling for every single known former residential school to be examined using the same technology uh, for these unmarked graves. It's challenging to articulate just the, the magnitude of injustice and sorrow here, because if you go, if you go into Canada now from Vancouver to Ottawa, you will see these memorials that have been erected and they're haunting children's shoes, you know, that will never be worn, laid out in commemoration. And the thing is that for the longest time, for the longest time, different activists and members of First Nations communities and survivors of residential schools 
have been talking about children disappearing without a trace, and they were simply ignored. In the equivalent of a horror story, these people knew what was going on, and authorities' figures were telling them, shh, it's nothing but the wind. Yeah, that's it's terrible when something that is just a rumor to everyone but the people who know for so long, and uh, that, that's a horrible thing. So, um, I mean, th- thank goodness it's coming out now. Is there a sense of what caused these deaths? Just mistreatment, malnourishment, uh, actual calculated executions? It's just the numbers are so staggering. There had to be some consistent reason. Well, it's, it's you know, they're mass graves, right? So there's, and they're old. So there's no way to really forensically, I guess you could forensically determine if anyone had died of certain things, but, you know, if it was well, malnutrition trauma, for example, things, right? Yeah. Like if there was signs of force in any way or, you know, bone fractures or things like that, right? Possibly, yeah, depending on the, as grisly as it is to say, depending on the level of time a body has been decaying in the ground. Uh, some causes of death are much more easy to discern than others, such as a, a broken skull, for instance. Uh, we know that suicide was probably a factor for some. Uh, neglect and disease were probably even larger factors. Current calculations uh, from The Guardian reckon that uh, at least ballpark 900 students died of tuberculosis. More than 150 would die of influenza or things similar to pneumonia. And when we look at the history of Kamloops in particular, what we see is that it's definitely not an isolated incident. It's just a very large school for its time. Uh, And it was also, get this, initially run by the Catholic Church from 1890 to 1969. And this is when some experts believe the death rate was the highest for the children forced into these schools. So the question then is, what happens? What happens in the wake of this discovery? Will Canada find more mass graves? I think it's safe to say our guess is yes. Uh, But the, the question we should end on here before we move on to the next story, is this. And it's a question that we'd love your help answering, fellow conspiracy realists. What should the government of Canada do next? What can they do? Is there any sort of, you know, I I hesitate to say compensation, because there is no compensation for the loss of a child. Uh, But what what steps should they, can they take uh, to to acknowledge this, to perhaps most importantly, make sure nothing like this happens again. Let us know, 1-833-STD-WYTK. You can also email us directly, conspiracy at iheartradio.com. We'll pause for a word from our sponsor and return with more strange news. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just 20 
$25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we're back with more strange news. Um, th- this one, we've talked about this briefly before uh, on the show um, in a previous segment, I believe, about COVID-19, where we discussed the idea that mink farms and exotic fur farms uh, in China could have also been an early source of the coronavirus. Um, the idea that the Biden administration is kind of doubling down um, in its efforts to determine the origins of the coronavirus. And that has led to kind of a renewed, well, a legitimacy behind this notion that um, the coronavirus start, was leaked from this uh, lab in Wuhan, China. The uh, I believe it's called the Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. Um, and it's a very high-level facility that handles all kinds of deadly pathogens. 
Um, and it's something that very early on was kind of met with <clears throat> scorn from the internationally uh, from uh, different experts in the field um, saying that there was no merit to it, that it was just this kind of conspiracy theory, this way of kind of, you know, damning the Chinese government further. The idea of like squarely pointing the finger at, at the Chinese um, government uh, as having borderline manufactured the uh, the virus or at the very least, poorly handled, you know, their business at this um, very uh, high level facility and that, you know, caused this virus to leak. Of course, you know, we, we all know that the kind of leading theory is that it was um, created, well, not created, but it was um, it, its genesis was at this wet market or the seafood market uh, where, you know, lots of exotic animals are sold for human consumption. That is kind of the I think the idea that most people more or less accept. Um, but I think we all know that this whole thing, like from the moment that coronavirus came out, it's been a war of information and, and a war of kind of like um, optics and public relations where, you know, the blame game essentially, where it's like, you know, okay, um, rather than we want to be known as the country that kind of did a really good job in deflecting this foreign invader, you know, this foreign biological invader that was caused by these people, um, this this country. So it's just an easier kind of line. It's an easier narrative to swallow and, and something for the history books. Um, but as, you know, we've kind of gotten things more or less under control, that war continues to wage, uh, as public relations wars often do. Um, and the Biden administration has called for an investigation into any possibility uh, of uh, the virus having started somewhere other than that that wet market. Um, and that includes this laboratory that we're talking about. Uh, of course, the Chinese government is not happy about this because they have their own narrative to consider. Uh, the idea that um, they got their uh, infection rate under control very quickly and that they were the ones that gave us the information that allowed us to do what we needed to do to get it under control and kind of casting themselves as like sort of the hero in the story. Everybody wants to be the hero in the story, right? Um, but the idea of the lab leak was always kind of, you know, this sort of conspiracy theory. And now because of this, official intelligence report that was, uh, I guess it wasn't leaked, but it was made public um, and reported on about a week ago. So this is a not a, a brand new story, but it's something that I think is worth discussing. Um, that is being given a lot more credence than it was. It's starting to mainstream a little bit more and not be dismissed because the intelligence community is investigating it because they have not been able to definitively prove where it came from. And you might ask, why does that matter? Uh, but it, it matters for those reasons, because we want the history books to reflect us as the, the victors and us as like the protagonists in this story. So, of course, the Chinese government has shot back. Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Lishan, uh, told reporters, quote, some people in the United States completely ignore facts and science. Um, and so is, is very much pushing back against this whole idea. And consequently, in kind of a, well, you're going to investigate us. We're going to investigate you. Um, so they have uh, called for their own probe into the idea that it came from the United States military um, in some sort of transport situation to a military base in Wuhan. So that's sort of a new development uh, there. Um, but it's interesting to see that after all this time, 
we still, no one is 100% sure where it came from. And while the idea that it was transmitted from animals to humans probably has the most sand to it because there's precedent for that, right? There's other viruses that we know uh, have, have done exactly that, like the uh, Zika virus, for example, mm-hmm. or other coronaviruses in the past, or I believe... What was another one? Leprosy and armadillos. Leprosy and armadillos, exactly. Um, so we know that this happens, and so it, it makes sense for it to be certainly at the, at the top of the list, you know, at least in the top five. But, Ben, we also have precedent for these lab leaks, don't we? Yeah, that's right, Noel. Um, I believe I mentioned this on a, on a previous episode or a previous Strange News segment, but uh, there there are documented cases throughout history of dangerous pathogens releasing not not through design not through you know bioweaponry attempts but just through good old fashioned lab leaks and human error like smallpox in the 1970s in Birmingham England it turns out that in Singapore I believe the first like since 2003 when there was a SARS outbreak if you'll remember, uh, there have been no less than six lab leaks of SARS. The first one took place in Singapore at the National University. It was as simple as a graduate student contracting the infection from a contaminated sample. Uh, So human error itself is not a conspiracy. And I think that's one of the things we need to reemphasize again. The, The questions that the current administration are asking are really due diligence, even though I profoundly appreciate your point there about sort of a war for hearts and minds. If you read news coming out of the Pacific, depending on which agencies you go with, if you read something like Channel News Asia, you'll see people arguing that investigations into the origin of COVID-19 are portrayed as partially about scientific interest or better empowering ourselves with knowledge for how to handle future pandemics. But you'll also see pundits arguing this is a competition for influence between the U.S. and China. And right now, you'll see both sides are calling for, like you said, the Chinese side is calling for that investigation of U.S. military facilities. But at the same time, you know, uh, Fauci is, Fauci and the current administration are urging China to release the medical records of people who worked at the Wuhan lab. And that's tough. That's a tough one to handle, right? Because it makes you look suspicious if you refuse. But to be absolutely fair, one could also argue this could be a violation of their, um, you know, their personal information, depending on how you uh, make it anonymous, and you can't really make it anonymous because if you're tracing a single leak in a lab, then you're following a specific person as they, you know, spread this across multiple vectors. So and then looking at tough? everybody else very specifically and what they did. So yeah, it's, yeah, it becomes very personal for everyone. Very Kevin Bacon, very six degrees, right? But beyond that, and so I like I. This is important, though. That's the other thing. It is important to know where this came from, how this happened. And it's a shame that it's entered the realm of, of geopolitics and, and a, a little bit of maybe uh, being overly concerned about an international image, because really what that means, if you're looking at it in the very, very basic terms, you're casting aside all the worries about international relations, all the worries about geopolitical reputation, what you're seeing is countries saying, 
our public standing is more important than the truth. Or you're seeing them say, we're okay with X amount of people dying so long as we look good at the end. And now mm-hmm. that's not, you know, of course, it's tough to ascribe motive because, again, like you guys said, we don't have, we still do not have a solid answer. And for anybody who's listening to our work on COVID as the pandemic unfolded, you know, it's pretty obvious that we were in what the military sometimes calls a fluid situation, right? Because we were getting the updates around about the same time a lot of us listening today were. So, Noel, what's the, what are the next steps? Where is the administration with this pressure? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, as I was saying, the, you know, Beijing has, has absolutely pushed back. The WHO already visited the lab and issued a report that indicated it was highly unlikely that um, the uh, virus originated there. And there are pretty compelling reasons for this, or at least in terms of what the folks at the uh, lab are saying at the lab in Wuhan. They are saying that they didn't have a virus like this, or they don't keep typically live viruses. They keep like portions. I'm not, again, I'm not a scientist, but they keep sort of samples that are like parts, like segments of the, of the sequence, I believe is how you might refer to it. Um, but not like a live active version of a virus, which is what it would take to create this pandemic. Uh, it would have to also be like, 99.999% identical or similar to the one that is out there. And that is not apparently the case based on what the WHO found or again, who knows what level of cooperation uh, Beijing um, gave the WHO when they did their probe, as we know, like these kinds of geopolitical uh, cooperative, you know, uh, things um, are often, Lacking in full transparency. It's sort of a, um, I guess you could say a technicality or a courtesy to allow them to come and check things out. But are they given full access? You know, it's the same with like looking for weapons of mass destruction, you know, with the UN, for example, or, you know, um, checking into uh, enrichment of uranium in other countries. Like it ultimately comes down to accepting the word of the country that you're investigating. It's interesting. Yeah, because, you know, it's something that we have seen on this show, unfortunately, we've seen it pretty often. It is not uncommon for something to be dismissed as some crazy, you know, wackadoo hyperbolic conspiracy theory only for it later to end up being partially, in some cases, completely true, such as, you know, laundry money for drug cartels. I have to be careful when I use that example now because it's so old, it's an antique. Da, 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 da. But the absolute truth of the matter is that a large portion of the world's media did something that I think was well-intentioned but not good science. They pre-debunked. And that's an error that a lot of people who consider themselves skeptics tend to make uh, because you can consider yourself a skeptic and still not apply critical thinking. As a matter of fact, you can argue that it's very tempting to forget that piece of skepticism when you feel like you've already got it down pat. So they pre-debunked this stuff. But if you look back, as far as like 2018, U.S. diplomats were warning about inadequate safety standards at this lab in Wuhan. They were saying, watch out. This is not, you know, this is not kosher. This is not on the level. They're playing with fire. 
And, you know, disease like fire can be contagious in certain circumstances, and they're they're not doing their due diligence. Well, can we talk about Fort Detrick for a minute? I was about to say, yeah, it's, it's hugely important in this uh, discussion because that is the base that I alluded to early. But, yeah, take it away, Matt. Oh, well, well, we've been hearing rumors about Fort Detrick and other U.S. labs and, you know, not necessarily just working for the government, but some private labs as well. And, and even Josh Clark in his end of the world show mm-hmm. talked about labs where you can manipulate viruses. You can strengthen viruses. You can. Um, what is the term? Oh, guys, I already forgot it. Where you add you add a at gain a function or something. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. I was trying to think of that term earlier when I was chatting with Ben off, off mic, but um, that that's a big part of the conversation uh, and, and part of what China is pushing back against saying that's exactly the kind of thing that happens at Fort Detrick um, and over 200 other U S bio labs. The, uh, the quote from Zhao is what secrets are hidden in the suspicion shrouded Fort Detrick and the over 200 U S bio labs all over the world. Um, and it's, it's, it's China that's been pushing this whole Fort Detrick theory um, for a while, since last March. Um, mm-hmm. And they're saying, they're calling now in the face of this new probe that they will probably not, they really have no reason to cooperate with. They already cooperated once. If, if we go back in, we're basically saying we think they're lying. Um, so why would they cooperate again? I, I don't really see it. It seems to me like more of a political thing, like rhetoric wise, than it is an actual functional thing that's going to go well <laughs> or mm. yield any results. What about a little quid pro quo, Clarice? I mean, why not have why not have a, a, another probe at the Wuhan lab? And in exchange, the U.S. allows the same at Fort Detrick. Kidding, yeah. <laughs> not going to happen. But yeah, it's right. True. We also have to remember in the context of the... In the context of this reporting, for a lot of people who live in China and who live in East Asia, Fort Detrick is not an unknown entity at all. Fort Detrick is old. Uh, Frank Olson, the uh, biochemical aerosol warfare expert who infamously died uh, like a Russian doctor uh, by falling through uh, a window in a hotel, was active in Fort Detrick's biochemical warfare, biowarfare programs during the Korean War. And later, later investigations would reveal that a lot of his work at Fort Detrick may have been applied on the Korean peninsula during the course of what the U.S. calls the Korean War. So if you are aware of history, aware of the, the way the narrative is often spun in East Asia and in parts of China, then when you hear Fort Detrick, you can't really be blamed for going, oh, yeah, of course, the bio-warfare headquarters. Yep. I don't think that sounds crazy, you know, so we, I think we have to understand the context. I, I mean, do you think that, uh, Noel, Matt, do you guys think that if if the U.S. agreed to some kind of limited probe of Fort Detrick where they are doing gain-of-function experiments, or they have done the same way that Wuhan's lab did, do you think that uh, the government of China would be more amenable to a further probe of the Wuhan lab? Maybe. I, I, I don't think it matters. You know, I think it's all just kind of smoke at this point where everyone's just trying to deflect the blame uh, or or you know, dump it on the other party. Um, And that would be kind of a zero sum game, wouldn't it? You know, like it doesn't really uh, benefit China to, to let them do that. Because again, we know that their government is not transparent. They're not known for their candor. That's sort of 
part of their thing, right? Um, and that's a real problem when you're trying to come to a mutually agreed upon conclusion about where something comes from if you don't have cooperation within the scientific community from these different countries, which is likely not ever going to happen in the way that, that would be effective, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why either superpower would give up exactly what they're doing in, you know, their laboratories where they're essentially testing weapons and how to, uh, you know, there's massively vital biological research done at these facilities. I can guarantee you where it is trying to decipher, you know, how to prevent the next one, how to fight back against specific types of viral uh, viruses and other methods of biological warfare. But these are also weapons facilities right it's research it's it's r&d in a way especially if they're performing the gain of function stuff so i can't imagine anyone letting at least i couldn't i can't imagine either of these powers letting the other one in without doing a serious forensic cleanse of the data first oh you know? yeah and then also imagine you know the the rationale for some of these experiments uh part of it is to get first past the post if if everybody is working on inventing a new gun and you can kind of tell what your rivals want the gun design to look like, then you would almost feel obligated to make that gun yourself and get and make it first. So it's a it's great very analogy, Ben. You guys, it sounds it sounds so much like the second season of the British Utopia to me. <laughs> yes. When when yeah. the virus is initially being created. Uh, it's really weird. Really weird. Well, and, and there's going to be a narrative that each country adopts. It will likely not be the same one. Uh, and history will reflect that. So we're probably going to be looking at this, you know, through kind of muddied lenses for, for, for the rest of our lives. And history sleuths, you know, later, way after we're gone, will probably do their due diligence and come to their own conclusions and, and compare the two theories and see which one makes the most sense. And maybe new things will come to light like they sometimes do. But it's definitely something we're going to be keeping an eye on for a very long time. And with that, uh, why don't we take another quick break and then we'll be back with uh, our last strange news. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Okay, and we're back. So we're going to jump to our strange news story. It's coming to us from Newsweek, as well as The Guardian and a couple other places that have been reporting on it. I initially saw it in a Reuters, just kind of quick post that they'll do uh here's the title japanese olympic official dies after jumping in front of train ahead of games and i'll just read a little bit from this article here the tokyo metropolitan police is investigating the death of yasushi moriya i think that's how you would say it or moriya i think it's moriya which it's treating as an apparent suicide and that's from nippon television a private news station there in japan it occurred literally this morning or at 9.30 a.m. on Monday morning there in, in Japan. Um, it was at the Nakano, Nakanobu station. And again, it's someone who jumped in front of an oncoming train and was killed in what at least appears to be a suicide. The reason why we're talking about it today is because this person was a senior official within the Olympic Committee there in Japan. And as, you know, as the Olympics are being prepared, and they it does seem as though the Olympics are going forward this year, very soon, they're less than 50 days until the Olympics begin. And we have before discussed a bit on this show, the corruption that can occur in big commissions, big organizations like the Olympic Committee, like FIFA, like uh, really anything. Like uh, like payola to like attract them to come to your country, things like that, and under under the table deals. Yes, we, we've discussed that before. John Oliver on Last Week Tonight has done extensive discussion of these very things. Um, the reason why it strikes me at least as interesting and worth discussing is because this person was essentially on the accounting side. 
of all of that. And, you know, the Olympics are a massively expensive thing for a country to take on. Building the infrastructure to host so many different activities, so many, you know, uh, hotels in the area for people to stay to make sure all uh, again, just even the travel infrastructure. It's it's insanely expensive and trying to put it on in a time when, you know, we're still in the pandemic as as good as things are looking, at least from the projections, we're still amidst a pandemic and Japan itself has seen a bit of a resurgence in cases. So there's a lot of public backlash against these games. There's all around. I think there were 10,000 volunteers who recently decided not to volunteer for the Olympic mm-hmm. games as mm-hmm. they would have in the past, or if this was a, I guess a normal year, uh, if you, if any year could be normal from now Where on. The only conspiracy was corruption. Yes. <laughs> instead of, uh, instead of, let's see, I believe as of June 3rd, two to 3% of Japan's population is vaccinated. Correct. At least that's what I've seen. Just for comparison, in the U.S., uh, the percent of the population that's fully vaccinated is something more like 42%. Got it. And, in you know, what is the Olympics, right? You are bringing in people from across the world to one place to gather, right? And what's the best case scenario for the virus within a pandemic? get a bunch of people from all over the place to gather together Mm. in one place and then send them all back (laughs) to, to every other place on the, in the world. So, um, it could be terrible. It could be, you know, the restart of something or something new, maybe some kind of variant that comes out of it. It could be nothing. It could be great, but there's so much risk involved here. It makes me wonder what happened to this, this person who, chose to end their life or who at least found themselves uh, dying via train. Um, And we don't have any answers. As I said at the beginning of this, zero answers right now. And we only know that the Tokyo Met police are treating, they haven't made a conclusion, but they're treating it as an apparent suicide, right? Correct. Because this person, 52 year old person who was the director of the Japan Olympic Committee's accounting department, stepped off the platform as the train was coming through. And that was from the ID card that was found on that person. And then we've got a situation where the state of emergency due to the pandemic has been extended, uh, but it looks like the International Olympic Committee in particular is pushing, Is they're quite adamant that the Olympics will begin on July 23rd, so late July. Uh, And again, think about the money that has been spent to create that infrastructure in Japan for these Olympics already. If something does go wrong and they don't get to hold the Olympics or it, you know, falls back by another year or is just postponed indefinitely, that could mean financial ruin for I don't even know how many individuals and companies. Yeah, yeah, because there's we're in a massive sunk cost situation at this point, and that's just the official money. That doesn't count, you know, the uh, the risk of sounding cynical, the inevitable bribery that occurs on some level every time the IOC comes to town. But with with this in mind, you know, I have to ask, Matt, Noel, do you think it is possible that there might be 
and this is entirely speculative, do you think it is possible that there might be some sort of blackmail or some sort of hidden hook that IOC could be holding over the Japanese government to force the move forward? Or is it simple economic necessity at this point? Well, there are several people who have commented who are close. Uh, Kaori Yamaguchi, who is the Japan Olympic Committee executive and executive board member of the um, JOC, the Japan Olympic Committee. There are several quotes from her, at least in Newsweek, that have been taken from other Japanese publications where she is saying that they're essentially cornered into they're cornered into a situation that they cannot stop. Like they can't stop the Olympics from happening at this point. It's too late. But they know the risk. They understand that, you know, something very bad could happen, but it doesn't matter because essentially again, it's too late. Um that's a scary thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a really it's scary like a, one potential analogy would be a macro cosmic level of of a car accident. And many of us in the audience today have been in those accidents where you are able to see what's going on and you know what's going to happen a few seconds before the collision occurs, but you are unable to stop it, right? The most basic level of that would be you're pumping your brakes and your brakes don't work and you watch yourself hit the back of a car or a building or something like that. And that may may well be the situation that some Japanese officials uh, feel they are in right now. They're watching the car and yeah. the brakes don't work. <laughs> And John Coates, who's the International Olympic Committee vice president, he's in the back seat going, quote, even if Tokyo is still under a state of emergency, the Olympics will go ahead. So basically in the back seat saying Floor. the brakes are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's going the, Woo, YOLO. The only thing in this situation, it's that whatever we're about to run into, it's it may or may not be there. Right. right. So, and it, it could be a contagious car accident. It could create a global pileup. That's the worst case oof. scenario, right? That's yeah. the disaster. That it, that this this accident creates accidents in Brazil, accidents yeah. in India, accidents in the U.S. and on and on and on and on. But I believe they said about eighty percent conservative estimate. Eighty percent of the athletes are going to be vaccinated. Yes. Yes. Um, and almost no outside observers will will be allowed to be there. So there will be a minimal number of other people from other countries besides athletes and the immediate support staff for those athletes allowed in to view the Olympics. Oh, okay. So that's a positive. Yeah. Um, But in the end, you know, in the end, it's, it's still a risk. Uh, even if every, even if ninety nine point nine eight percent of the people entering Japan who normally wouldn't be to have those Olympics, it would still be a, I don't know, a bit dangerous. But again, is that just me being alarmist? I don't know. Not really, but also here's the question: maybe more importantly uh, than than our thoughts on it, what do the people of Japan think? Is mm. there public support for this? No. At least according to opinion polls, and you know those can be swayed and you know any which way, but mm-hmm. the majority of the opinion polls coming out uh, are saying that the Japanese citizens don't want this to happen. Uh, it's just not 
not what they want. Like a majority do not wish for this to occur. Uh, well, here you go. Uh, this is from CBS News. According to the AP, an estimated 50 to 80% of Japan's population doesn't believe that the Olympics should take place. And there's been a petition signed with, uh, what, Ballpark, 350,000 signatures? Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, the big question, at least for me, is what did Yasushi Moriya Moria know? Was it, you know, it could have been something in Yasushi's personal life that, that caused this to occur. It could have been something completely unrelated. But just given the position that this person was in and the timing of it, it does make me personally feel like there's some knowledge there that mm. maybe we'll learn about later. For now, it's very sad that someone is dead. And it does honestly make me feel a little nervous that the Olympics is moving forward this year. But we'll have to wait and see what happens. You know, while we're talking about these very high-level things, uh, massive amounts of money, massive amounts of, of people, I mean, it's the Olympics, for Pete's sake, uh, we do also have to recognize, you know, as you said, Matt, this is a human life. This is a tragedy. Uh, we will hopefully learn more about the circumstances, especially if they do, they are salient to their work at the Olympics. But also imagine how traumatic it is to be driving that train. Yeah. Which is something that I, I don't know, because this is not the first person to die in this manner uh, by the Olympics. And is it possible that maybe they had a heart attack and fell? We really don't know. At we, this point. we have no idea any of that stuff. Uh, honestly, we, we don't. So it could be nothing. And, and we're just talking about it for just for me wanting to bring up my concerns about the Olympics. So, hey, that could be all we're doing here today. I would say if you are interested in any of this, head on over to The Economist, economist.com. There's a great article there titled The Impulse Behind Japan's Decision to Go On with the Olympic Games. And it is it's a fascinating read. And it has maybe a lot to do with what we were just talking about with the United States and China in not wanting to lose face over their their weapons programs and or bio, you know biological testing programs. Um, at least according to this writer, uh, it appears that Japan may be attempting to, you know, save face a little bit because they they were going to host the Olympics last year and they just had to completely abandon it. And, mm -hmm. you know, those sunk costs that you're talking about and the, you know, worldwide reputation essentially of Japan as not maybe the fears of being eclipsed by their neighbors in China and, you know, the United States and other places that are hosting the Olympics and making big moves. The Olympics is a big thing to be able to host. And it does a lot of good for your country's reputation if it goes well. Oh, we should also point out, by the way, uh, it, it appears that the most of the rest of the world is supporting this. At least they're sending their athletes to the to the Olympics. The only ones who are definitely not going right now that are confirmed are Russia and the DPRK or North Korea. Russia wanted to go, but had a doping scandal. And uh, North Korea has uh, has pulled out on their own. So the rest, like, so just to be clear, it's not as if the rest of the world is telling them not to do it. Correct. Which is also something to chew on, isn't it? Well, yeah, and like, 
every other Olympics, the vast majority of citizens in countries across the world would be watching it on a television or on a computer or on their phone. So, you know, it's not like it would be that scary to them in the moment, right? Or, or potentially dangerous in the moment because it's wherever there, it's in here somewhere. And, and from what I understand, there's an excellent article uh, that I think you, you may have shared with us before it went on air at uh, theconversation.com, uh, which points out that even if Tokyo wanted to cancel, by which I mean, you know, Japan, uh, the same way you would say Washington when you mean the U.S. government, uh, even if Tokyo wanted to cancel due to the way the contract is written, they cannot. The only group that can cancel the Olympics is the IOC by ending the contract. So we don't know what happens if that contract gets breached. If Japan says, well, for the safety of our people, we're not going to do this. Or, or whether, you know, the IOC is, I know they they made an agreement with Pfizer to make sure all, all the athletes were vaccinated. Uh, but that's still, I mean, that that's a good thing. Don't get us wrong. But it's interesting that a country at this point for this sporting event is powerless to to stop something happening on their own soil you know when you think about it that way absolutely absolutely so hey uh, uh, are we completely blowing this out of proportion is there nothing to worry about here is everything going to be fine is this going to be terrible what do you think we'd love to know your opinion what do you think happened what do you think happened to yasushi Mariah? Mm-hmm. We'd love to know if you actually know something. Speculating can be interesting, but we're not really interested in that. It's more just let's let's talk about it and perhaps there's something there or something known. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you have a firsthand experience with any of the stories that we have explored today, or if something you heard today has inspired you to reach out with another related topic, we would likewise I uh, love to hear from you. And, you know, perhaps it's because of the nature of our discussion today, but please, everyone, stay as safe as you can. Uh, you don't have to go meet us in person just yet, though we'll probably be on the road at some point. Uh, right now, the easiest way to find us is online. That's right. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we're Conspiracy Stuff. We're Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. Uh, and if you don't want to mess with the social medias, you can give us a telephone call. That's right. You can get us at one eight three three stdwytk Yes, please tell us what you would like for us to refer to you as. It doesn't have to be your real name. It could be the coolest nickname you can think of. Leave your message. Uh, put the stuff you think should be on air up front. And if you want to have a personal message, maybe to us. Uh, put it on the back. You have three minutes. We ask that you please only call once for a topic. If you've got more to say, then we highly recommend you use our good old-fashioned email address, which is conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.